Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Egan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will die and be buried on what came to be known by the church as Good Friday. After darkness covered the cross, Jesus says something that has caused an entire line of theological thinking that God separated himself from the Son. And it runs so deep that people believe that it has to have happened that way, or Jesus' sacrifice didn't work. This is usually associated with the view of an angry God distributing and pouring his wrath upon Jesus for our sin. God beating up God, as it were. Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lima, Shabachtani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First, if Jesus is asking, does it mean it's so? What if he was quoting a Psalm of David, or even trying to sing it as a comfort? I want to propose a theory that Jesus had been quoting from Psalm 22 all day, and that the curated reports of the event into the four Gospels have been put in different orders with little snapshots, and we haven't seen it in full. If I'm anywhere close, you will see Yahweh is not forsaking his child at all. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by a day, but you do not answer, and by a night, but I find no rest. Jesus is definitely feeling this low vibe. God doesn't feel near in his death. Death is absence from God. But does Jesus turn on God? No. Psalm 22, verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. This is very much Jesus' experience on the cross so far. And he's pleading with Yahweh to remember him as he has his forefathers. Verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Jesus continues to pass the test, trusting in the Lord's way, not saving himself, but depending on Yahweh's might. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. 
this line could have reminded Jesus of his mother that he was leaving behind and prompted his request to John to take care of her. Verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. His enemy is surrounding him. The cross has pulled his bones out of joint and he is experiencing heart failure. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. People will think he's asking for a drink in a minute and I'm thinking that they might be hearing him quote this. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. Now, pierce here in the Hebrew was more of a shredding, like from lion's claws, but he still has experienced hand and feet destruction, but he can count all of his bones, fulfilling the law in numbers about unbroken sacrifices. He has managed to survive the day unbroken. He can count them all intact. None have split. It continues. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. This was already cited by a gospel author as a major connection. The psalm goes on. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Jesus is longing for God to feel near, to quickly rescue him, to do something praiseworthy. So will he? Or will he turn his back and cover his face as Jesus becomes the sin offering? Verse 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The opposite is true. God does not despise Jesus on the cross. God does not abhor Jesus on the cross. He doesn't hide his face. He hears his cry. God is going to do something for Jesus that will bring praise for generations. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all those who go to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. 
they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He has done it. The single Hebrew word, asah, which means done. All that Jesus prayed for, God will see done. You know what the equivalent word is in Greek? Tetalistai, translated, it is finished. A word stamped on paid bills, done. This psalm was 100% written about the crucifixion and 50% chance Jesus had it on his mind all afternoon because of the hope that lies within. God will not leave. He will get the saving done. Now I know. What about God's anger? Oh, he still burns against the wicked. That is clear that the day of the Lord is still a big problem for humanity. But the cross is the way out. It's entrance into Eden, the deathless space. Judgment is coming upon the land of the wild and waste, the land of exile, the land of rebellion. And in the same way that Yahweh didn't kill the sacrificial lamb at all, let alone his anger, he has nothing to do with Jesus' death outside of letting go of order and allowing chaos to crush in on him and give him the same love as sending an angel in the garden to his faithful servant on the cross. God didn't kill Jesus. Well, what about Isaiah 53 that says, We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Jesus' Bible, the Septuagint, didn't say that. Go Google LXX or Septuagint, Isaiah 53. Verse 4, he bears our sins and is pained for us, yet we accounted him to be in trouble and in suffering and in affliction. The Lord is also pleased to purge him from his stroke. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible before Jesus. Later translations in the 9th century onward go from God pleased to purge Jesus from his stroke to being pleased to pain him. Quite the switcheroo. It still has, in verse 5, but he was wounded on our account for our sins. He was bruised because of our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was placed upon him, and by his bruises we were healed. Truly, he did this for us. He died like a sacrificial animal, but once and for all to cover our entry into God's space, without our own deaths. So Jesus at least quotes Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people respond. Matthew 27, 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Why would they think he's asking for a drink? I think it's possible that they heard him quote all the way to Psalm 22:15. That makes sense to me. But they think Jesus calls upon Elijah to save him. Jesus isn't calling upon Elijah to save him. He's in the process of saving Elijah. And wh- why even think about Elijah? The first word he said was Eloi or Eli, which sounds like Elijah in Hebrew. 
Plus, his words may have been very faint from the cross. Well, the question is, will he drink now? John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. The concluding word to Psalm 22. He passed the test. He has bore our sin as a sacrificial lamb. He can now die so that his blood can be used to cover us through the veil. Matthew tells us he cried loudly when he died. Luke tells us he quoted Psalm 31. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He might have had the whole first part of Psalm 31 on his heart. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. He has completed his work. He has fulfilled the law, taking upon himself the curses for disobedience, leaving only a law of blessing behind. He is the last priest, a priest with a new law, a law of freedom and of grace. With the penalty of sin, which is death, being removed with this final sacrifice, a new covenant is formed that he alluded to at his last supper. No longer is the Holy of Holies just for priests. It is for all. Everyone now has open access to God. This echoes of a cosmic shift. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And this curtain isn't just any curtain. It's the curtain in the temple, in the place called the Holy of Holies. It's behind this curtain the priests come before the Lord, but God tears that curtain, opening access to all mankind. I can't help but remember the Christmas story at this point. This little child is born in Bethlehem, and the Magi visit him from the east, giving him strange gifts. Gold, symbolizing that he will be king. Frankincense, a fragrant incense used by priests in worship. And myrrh, an element used to anoint the dead. Something mixed into Jesus' drink as well. All of these symbols combine to demonstrate the sacrifice of Jesus. It is in this powerful moment our Savior becomes king, priest, and dead. At the same time, a major earthquake hits the town of Jerusalem, so severe it causes rocks to split. The death of Christ is an earth-shattering, powerful event with repercussions affecting even creation. Think of it this way. The creator is killed by his creation in his creation, and the rocks split and the earth shakes. Researchers have discovered geological evidence of an earthquake at the same time. If our atonement And earthquakes are not enough. Something incredibly strange happens next. Out of the gospel authors, only Matthew describes it. So we only get one angle. Matthew 27, 52 to 53. 
The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, we have to go to the Greek to understand this one. The original language here has been interpreted many ways based on what translators wanted to believe about this. There is no such thing as an unbiased analysis, or I would give you one, but I can't. My interpretation is based on my own bias, but I'll give it to you anyway. The words after his resurrection fit the entire two verses, meaning the tombs have broken open, likely from the earthquake. But nobody rises to life until Jesus does. They don't rise to life as Jesus is still dead and buried and then they're out there wandering the streets. They don't rise to life to wait in their tombs before going out into the streets. But at Jesus' resurrection, which is three days after the earthquake, the holy righteous dead, only purified by the blood of Christ, in Jerusalem's tombs, will get up and walk about as well, like a couple hundred Lazaruses. How amazing is that? And this fits with Paul's testimony that tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. In my opinion, based on how I see the original language, he rises first and then they follow, not the other way around. It says they return to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and they appear to many people. Now, that's weird for sure, but it's also really cool. Now, these folks either eventually die again, as Lazarus surely does, or they've been raised into new resurrected bodies way before the rest of us. We all have to wait on new bodies until the resurrection of the dead when the dead in Christ rise first. And then we meet Jesus. We all get our bodies, but not a second sooner. It's very possible that these folks have been raised into new bodies never to die again as some fulfillment of the Feast of first fruits. Well, what is that? Well, it's from Leviticus 23. Essentially, it's an extension of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. People bring the first fruits of their harvest to the priest, and the day after the Sabbath, he waves the sheath around so it will be accepted by God. And everyone's first fruits are brought to God on this day. So follow me here. Jesus dies during Passover and will be rising to life again on the day after the Sabbath, the same day as the Feast of Firstfruits, it's possible that if he raises some people to life, they're the first fruits given to the priest, with many more to come at a later date. Anyway, it's quite the deal, but somehow not notable to Mark, Luke, or John. Matthew 27:54, when the centurion and those who were with him kept watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay. The centurion is a Roman, right? There were a lot of signs that the gods were not happy with humanity, or in this case, that the Most High God, Yahweh, was not happy with humanity. A possible dust storm, definite darkness, definite earthquake, definite temple damage, and a looming blood moon that evening. These natural and supernatural disturbances had never happened for anyone else they had crucified. The centurion knows instantly that he's different and he's terrified. 
Luke tells us that one of the centurions says, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the multitudes who had come together for the spectacle when they observed what happens began to return, beating their breasts. They are stunned. Well, what about those who knew Jesus, like these faithful women? Luke tells us all of his acquaintances are viewing these things from a distance. Matthew specifically tells us many women are doing so. And now it's time to bury him. Remember, it's a holiday that evening at dark, which came prematurely, and they have to make special arrangements. Now, Jesus is crucified on a Thursday, but he doesn't die until Friday when the sky went dark. John 19.31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs be broken, that they may be taken away. What a tricky situation in 33 AD. A Friday Passover, which is already a Sabbath, because it's Passover, right before a Saturday Sabbath, and even worse, the 15th of Nisan, meaning one of God's ordained high Sabbaths, one of seven special Sabbaths. There were two associated with Passover, and the other five were associated with other feast days. On a high Sabbath, work restrictions were especially strict, as were rules of cleanliness about being around the dead. They had to get these dead guys out of here. Some men can hang on a cross barely alive for days, and that would be really bad when facing this holiday. The Passover meals that night and the the daylight of Friday would be a will be full of Sabbath preparation. So they speed the dying process by breaking the convict's legs so they can, you know, not push up any longer to get breath. John 19, 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John is claiming to be an eyewitness to the stabbing. Jesus died without any broken bones. A blameless lamb, fulfilling Psalm 34.20. People look upon the one they pierced is a fulfillment of Zechariah 10. Now, why say all of this? When John wrote his gospel, there was a problem with Gnosticism and other groups that would have you believe that Jesus wasn't really human. John goes into great lengths to show how human he was, saying he saw with his own eyes that blood and water flowed. The lack of oxygen in Jesus' human body caused water to swell around his traumatized heart causing a flow of blood and water. He was truly human in every way, and he truly died. John 19.38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now two men who have been disciples of Jesus, but ashamed, uh, the, the ashamed and fearful kind, are the ones who bury him. Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus, a Pharisee. They have to bury him quickly because of the holiday, and that's partly why Jesus is buried in Joseph's private tomb in a garden rather than in his family tomb, which would have been further away. And to make things even faster, the Jewish custom doesn't call for a slow burial process like embalming or mummification. They simply wash his body, cover it with cloth, and anoint the cloth with spices and oils. 75 pounds of these materials is a huge amount for any person and will be very expensive, but Nicodemus likely understands by this point who Jesus is, and he honors him in this way. Isaiah prophesied long before that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men, but then would be with the rich at death. Here he's laid in the freshly cut tomb of the wealthy Joseph, where no dead body had ever lay. Matthew tells us a great stone rolled over the entrance and that the Marys were there with him. They take it all in. Their Lord, Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God, newly crowned King, dead, absent from his wounded body, his empty shell being honored in a garden tomb. Meanwhile, Friday night the lambs were slaughtered and the meat prepared and eaten by the families of faith. This to remember Yahweh's mighty act of deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And before eating, a servant would wash everyone's feet. Everyone would wash their hands. The table would be set. Non-ritual wine would be drunk during the meal, but the table would be set with four glasses of ritual wine. Everyone reclined at the lowered table together. Can you imagine even trying to do this the day Jesus died? I wonder if those who loved him did. I wonder if they thought about their ancestors painting blood on their doorposts to cover them from the plague of death. I wonder if they thought about how Jesus' blood was doing the same thing for them on the same day. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. God is good, always. He has the power to forgive and he reopened the way to himself through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus for us. Blood covers us as we enter in. The veil is torn. Separation can be over. Or it can remain. There's still wrath for the wicked. So how does one become righteous to escape? Well, the only place free from death is God's space. And the only way in is Jesus, via his blood, a covenant of grace. May Yahweh be praised forevermore. Jesus truly died. The power of evil is death. It's its greatest weapon to wield. The most it can do to any person is kill them. The powers of evil, both cosmic and human, colluding together, plot against the Lord to kill him. It's their one shot, and it works. But Jesus put his spirit into God's hands to save. The story isn't over yet. Death will not be victorious over this man. Again, may Yahweh be praised forevermore.
Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, it will be Saturday.